What a joy. I'm so glad you were here today. What a glorious day. What a fantastic thing to celebrate. This is the first baptism that I've had the privilege of performing. And I'm so glad that it was Paul. We love you, Paul. Oh, I'm going to cry again. I've been crying all morning. No, but baptisms are my favorite. Like my favorite thing, I love the way we do it. We include it in, in the music. It's a part of worship because it is an act of worship. It is a celebration. It is something to cheer. It is something to make noise about. It is something fantastic to celebrate. But I get so emotional every single time I cry. And, and that's been true for years because it's just so beautiful. I love the symbolism of baptism, of dying to self and being raised into new life. We're sharing in Jesus' resurrection, his death and his resurrection. But I think mostly I love the beauty of a person saying yes. A person saying yes to being loved by God and to belonging to his family making a very public declaration that, yes, they are all in, all in. And trusting, part of that is trusting that God's response to that commitment is absolute pleasure, just delight in the surrender. It's beautiful. And, you know, I really think that a little bit, at least a part of the emotion that I feel during baptisms as a witness to a baptism, I think that somehow, I don't know how this works, but through the mystery of the Holy Spirit working in my soul, I think that God's gift is that I get to feel a little bit about what he is feeling during a baptism. How must it feel to God that someone that he loves has chosen him back, has returned his great affection. Baptism is a ritual that's been part of the Christian faith since before, you know, since the beginning. Um, It's got roots in Judaism. There were lots of rituals in the Old Testament that water was a symbol of cleansing and, and new beginnings and things like that. And over the centuries that it's been practiced in the Christian church, there have been lots and lots of different expressions of it, understandings of it, styles of doing it, lots of many understandings about the theology surrounding baptism, almost as many churches as there are you would find uh, theologies and styles of baptism. But here at Vineyard, we understand baptism to be symbolic, and we say that it is an outward expression of an inward reality. We don't necessarily believe it's a requirement of salvation, but it is a powerful, meaningful, and significant act because what we're saying is we're identifying with Jesus and we're saying we want to be like him. And it's powerful. So today, as we are continuing in our sermon series called Follow Me, The Life and Love of Jesus, Uh, We're going to revisit Jesus' own baptism, the day that that happened, and we're going to talk about some of the events that were immediately following that, and we'll talk through some implications that those things might have on your life and on mine. But before I do that, I'm just, I cannot contain myself this morning. I am just sort of a wreck, and so I want to pray one more time before I start. 
I'll take a deep breath with, with Marie. Father, thank you for the gift of your word and the example of your son. Give us ears to hear today what you would communicate to us, what you want us to learn. And Father, help me as I communicate that I would not say a single thing that would distract from your heart and from your love. Let your truth and your grace be planted deep in our hearts as we contemplate you today. Amen. So first, let's look at a passage that talks about Jesus' baptism. There's some reference to Jesus' baptism in all four of the Gospels, but today we're going to read from uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 3, starting in verse 13. You can grab a Bible out of the windowsill. Feel free to use your phone or your device where the words will be on the screen behind me. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, which was a river, to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Jesus is hard to argue with. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. So John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin, incidentally, he was a prophet of sorts, and he was, he was in the practice. I don't have time to go into why and all of that stuff this morning for the sake of time, but he was, he was baptizing people in the Jordan River, calling them to kind of repentance um, there at the river. And Jesus comes to John, and he asks to be baptized. And John protests at first, and so what we, what we infer from that is that he understood the significance of Jesus. He knew that Jesus was special, he was different, he wasn't just another guy. I mean, it doesn't talk a lot about how John would know those things or what they, their conversations over, you know, coffee or whatever they did when they were growing up. Or We don't know what John knew about Jesus' Um, plans for his public ministry, but John clearly knew that there was something special about Jesus because he said, oh, I don't don't want to be baptized by you. You're the one that needs to baptize me. But, as I said, Jesus is hard to argue with. And Jesus, the sinless son of the almighty God, wanted to be baptized, and somebody had to do it. He couldn't baptize himself. And so John acquiesced. But it's Jesus' absolute insistence on participating in this ritual, I think, is one of the reasons that it's been so emphasized by his followers, you know, throughout the course of Christian history. But today, what I really want you to notice is verses 16 and 17. I want to go back to that for just a second. Jesus comes up out of the water, which is a beautiful moment. You guys couldn't really see that part back there, but beautiful moment. But Jesus comes up out of the water, heaven opens, and 
I, I don't know, I always picture it like there's one of those brilliant giant rays of sunshine and it's like a spotlight shining down on Jesus out of these beautiful blue skies and fluffy white clouds. And then it says the spirit of God descends on him like a dove. Which, whatever that means, I don't, did it really look like a bird? Do you guys wonder that? Or is that like a metaphor? Does it describe like the quality of God's presence? It was gentle and it was soft like a dove. What, what is that all about? I don't, I don't know. But what does God say in that moment? He says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now here is one of the kind of spots that over the last few weeks I have been trying to draw your attention to as we're going through this series because this is one of those moments we're probably pretty familiar with, probably have heard this story before. And so we might not take time to carefully and slowly reflect on what's actually happening here. Just roll right over it. Well, the heavens opened and God spoke and without reflecting on the fact that, oh my goodness, God just spoke audibly from the sky to a group of people. That doesn't happen to me every day. I don't know about you guys. And oh my goodness, look at what God, when he did that, look at what he chose to say. Of all the things that he could say to Jesus and the crowd, Revelation of deep mysteries of the faith. A call to repentance. Get on your faces. Sackcloth and ashes, people. Maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe some instructions for the public ministry that Jesus was about to start. Some, some kind of things to do list, tips and tricks. I, there was a lot of stuff maybe in that, you know, very public and very important moment that God could have chosen to communicate But out of all the things that God could have chosen to say to Jesus in that moment, God chose to speak identity. This is who you are. This is how I feel about you. Identity. Identity is foundational. It is the starting place. As I said, this moment in time, this Jesus baptism was kind of the kickoff to his public ministry, his time of public ministry. I I assume that people knew that were close to him a little bit about his devotion to God and his, his posture. You know, we know that his family lost him at the temple when he was 12 years old. And he said, I have to be about my father's business. Why would I come home with you? I'm busy you know, doing church stuff. So, I mean, we know Jesus was a little odd. There's a couple of clues to that. But he hadn't done anything public yet. He had had healed no one yet. He had cast out no demons. He hadn't healed any lepers or raised any dead people. None of that had happened yet. It was about to. This was the kickoff for that. But that's the thing about identity, isn't it? The thing about identity is that it is not a function of what you do. It's not what you do. It's not your behavior. It is the core of who you are. 
It is what is most true about you, no matter what else is true. And what was most true about Jesus was that he was a beloved child of God. And God thought that this truth was one that was worth declaring from the heavens at this pivotal and public moment. Why? Why is this important? Well, for a clue, I think we can look at what happened next. The next verse following the baptism account, it starts a new chapter in the Bible, right? So we often separate these two events and we look at them in isolation. But you guys may or may not know this, but those, those chapter divisions and the verse divisions, those weren't part of the original text, like, like Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. That, that was something that was added much later just kind of as an organizational tool for us. And even if we do know that, though, there's a space in the Bible and the, the text changes, and so sometimes our brain can kind of do a trick on us, and we separate things. We, we cause divisions in the Word that weren't necessarily meant to be there. So I think what happened next is absolutely connected. So I want to keep reading in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's the very next thing that happened. And I want you to listen carefully as I read to how Satan words his challenges to Jesus. Verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. The tempter, that's Satan, came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In verse 5, the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he'll command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Then Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan goes on in the passage to offer Jesus the whole world if Jesus will bow down and worship him. Jesus again resists. He doesn't take the bait. And then that ends this time of of tempting in the desert. But where was he attacked? If you are the son of God, Satan was challenging his identity. And what we learn from this exchange between the prince of the world and the very human Jesus is that identity is powerful. Identity is powerful. By knowing his identity, by choosing to believe that what God said about him was true, Jesus defeated the plan of the enemy to throw him off course. All of those temptations were invitations to take matters into his own hands. 
But Jesus knew, he knew that he had nothing to prove. He knew that he was the son of God. So he didn't have to take the bait of if you are. He knew that he was loved. He knew that God was pleased with him. So he did not need to take matters into his own hands. As Satan was suggesting that he do. So in this situation, Jesus' identity was a weapon against the lies and the attacks of the enemy. A weapon and a shield. That's powerful. The Apostle Paul makes a statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. forget which verse it is, but he says, We are not unaware of Satan's schemes. We're not unaware. And one of the reasons that that's true is that Satan has never really changed up his game. Not since time as we know it began. Because that question, if you are, that he asked Jesus in the Judean desert, it sounds a lot like another question. Like the question, did God really say that Satan asked of Eve in the garden? Satan tempted Eve to disobey God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he did that by questioning her at her place of identity. What did he offer her? What was the temptation? What did Satan offer to Eve? Genesis 3, 5 tells us, when you eat from it, when you eat from that tree that God asked you not to eat from, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. But Adam and Eve were already like God. It says they were made in his image and likeness. That was their identity from the start. That was already what was most true about them. But sadly, Eve believed the lie that she was not who God said she was. She took the bait and she took matters into her own hands and human beings have been wondering ever since if God really loves us. Like I said, the enemy of our souls is not super creative. He doesn't have to be because the old trick is so effective. Isn't it? Do you believe? Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that you are his child? Do you believe that he is pleased with you? Pleased with you. Hopefully for most of us, the answer is yes, most of the time. But if you tell me that you never doubt, you never struggle with those questions, you never struggle to believe that it is just as true on your worst day as it is on your best day, I might call you a liar to your face. Because here's the truth. 
Identity is our battleground. It's the most important battleground, I think. I really believe that because everything else flows out of it. Everything about our faith. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. 1 John 3, 1, see what great love the Father has lavished upon us. This is one of my favorite verses, that word for lavish. It is just the most extravagant, frivolous, luxurious word. The love that God has lavished upon us. Wasteful, reckless love. Ridiculous amounts of love. And he did that so that we would be called children of God, and that is what we are. We are who God says we are. He feels about us the way that he says he feels about us. And let me just back up for just a second, because it's super easy, the the collective us, the collective we. God loves you. You are who God says you are. God feels about you the way that God says he feels about you. That is our starting place. That's what gives us strength. It gives us purpose. It gives us security. It gives us our dignity. Everything flows from that identity. Out of that reality... Out of that, we find the freedom to make choices that align with our value. Out of that supply is where we can find the resources we need to offer service to others. And out of that place of acceptance, we can allow ourselves to be seen by God, fully seen, and experience the unbroken intimacy that we were created for by knowing that we are loved and that he is pleased for us, knowing our identity. Satan's goal is to rob us of that. He wants to rob us of our dignity. He wants to destroy our relationship with God. And so he exploits our fears, our failures, our insecurities. Man, he just dials down on those things and like twists the screw in. Our only hope is to fight back like Jesus did by confronting those lies and replacing them with the truth. We have to learn to recognize that ugly, taunting voice, the whispers of the enemy hissing in our ear when he says, does God really love you? How could he love somebody like you? We have to equip ourselves We have to equip ourselves by knowing the truth of our identity. We have to resist 
to fight, to rebel against those demonic voices from the pit of hell. One of my favorite authors to read on, well, pretty much any religious subject, but the subject of identity in particular, is Brennan Manning. Brennan Manning is fantastic. He puts it like this. This is one of his more famous quotes and one that I just love. Define yourself radically. Radically. That's like like a rebel, like a gorilla out in the jungle, just like the resistance army fighting. Be a radical freedom fighter for yourself. Define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. All other identities are an illusion. An illusion. You are one that is loved by God. That is the most true thing about you. Always. The true self. Your true self, my true self. One beloved by God. And through his death and his resurrection, Jesus made it possible. That was the point of the whole thing. He made it possible, again, for humans to embrace our true identity. The identity that we share with him. So that same voice of love that spoke over Jesus at his baptism, the very same voice of love is the one that is speaking over each of you this morning. So feel his presence. Feel it rest on you like that gentle dove as he reminds you who you are and how he feels about you. You are my child whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Let me pray.